on the candle disappears Melted wax reminds me of her years Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. 2021 is the 30th anniversary of the delivery of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Since March this year, five Aboriginal people have died in custody across the country. Ending Aboriginal deaths in custody reducing over-representation of Aboriginal people in custody is still a demand for social movements in Australia. With all of this in the background, the coronial inquiry into the death of Aboriginal man Wayne Feller Morrison is currently underway in Adelaide. The inquest has exposed yet again the abhorrent and racist treatment of Aboriginal people in custody and the deplorable lack of regard for their health and well-being. Latoya Rule is the sister of Wayne Morrison. She's a party in the coronial inquest and she's an anti-carceral activist. She joins me on Accent of Women today. I'm Latoya Aroha Rule. I'm um, a Radjuri and Māori person, First Nations person, and I've grown up on Ghana land, which is where I'm coming to you from today in South Australia, but I currently reside on Gadigal land. Thank you. Thanks so much. And especially thanks for joining me today, LaToya, because what we want to talk about today is um, uh, the current inquest into the death of your brother, Wayne Feller Morrison, um, and the, the what is happening on that front. And of course, the context is this year is the 30th anniversary of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So I guess to start with, um, why don't we look at uh, what happened to, to Wayne that, that brings us to the call today? Yeah, um, and thank you for having me. It's such an important yarn with us going through the court at the moment, the coroner's court um, here on Garden Land. So I'm really grateful um, to be interviewed. Um, so Wayne was a 29-year-old Radri Kukuta and Wiringal person. Um, so he also grew up alongside us on Ghana land um, and the family, the Morrison family, are from the West Coast, so the far west coast of South Australia. Um, and essentially Wayne had never been convicted of any crime. He um, was on remand awaiting um, a, a magistrate's court, which he put up a bail application for after six days on remand. And Essentially, during the course of that time, we have heard evidence that he put in things like uh, medical request forms. You know, he um, was was taken to other holding cells in a place called Holden Hill Holding Cells. Um, and, yeah, he, he um, on the day that he was supposed to be essentially released, which is what we expected when we were waiting the court from Yatla Labour Prison, where he had been held for the majority of the time, an alleged incident um, occurred between multiple corrections officers, prison officers at Yatla Labour Prison. Um, up to 14 officers were, were involved in the, in the restraint of Wayne, and he had a spit hood put over his head. His hands and feet were cuffed um, with flexi cuffs, 
and he was carried face down into the back of a transport prison van where there were eight officers inside. One was a driver um, and many were essentially with him in the back of the van. Um, And, yeah, they transported him and less than three minutes later he was called out unconscious. We've heard evidence so far that there was a delay um, in the resuscitation of Wayne, so it took more than 55 minutes to resuscitate him and essentially by that stage he was brain dead and we turned off his life support machine at 3.50am on the 26th um, of September 2016 in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. So there's multiple you know, questions about Um, what happened inside the van mostly. We've heard different parts of evidence about the restraint, why they believed he needed to be restrained, all of those stories that come up. Um, But to date, we've sat through, you know, a um, obviously the coronial inquiry almost five years later that we're still this week and next week. We've um, gone through a parliamentary inquiry to look at the administration of South Australian prisons and have submitted our own reports to that about our recommendations and about what happened to Wayne. We sat through an ombudsman inquiry into South Australian corrections about Wayne's death as well. That ensued um, from that, the recommendation came that corrections should apologise to my family about the way we were treated, which was incredibly poorly. Um, And of course, corrections officers and their lawyers, many, many lawyers, um, up to 14 lawyers also on their side when we have two, have also already taken the coroner to the Supreme Court of South Australia to try to get her removed from our case. Um, And that was, you know, they failed at that, but they've been allowed to um, plead the right against self-incrimination, which is a very um, common law that a lot of people use to support, you know, their cases, but not so much public servants like corrections officers. So here we are sitting in our coronial inquiry with, you know, the seven van officers. The first one went last Friday. We fought for them to get there, fought for them to face us, fought for them to give evidence, and they're saying in there essentially... I plead the right to silence. I plead the right to not tell the family, not tell our family what happened to Wayne in those final moments. There were some other pieces that I just wanted to go back to, but LaToya, thank you so much for detailing that. I uh, I imagine that's actually quite distressing, all of that Um coronial inquiry information that you've had to sit through and the ombudsman's inquiry before that too. One of the things that had been noted during this particular coronial inquest is that um, Wayne Morrison was in a coma for a period of time and there was a, a massive delay in telling the family and I imagine that was part of the ombudsman's recommendation to issue an apology to the family. What can you tell us about that part of what happened? Yeah, so just before, as I was saying, my mum, my sister and I were sitting in the magistrate's court in Elizabeth in South Australia waiting for my brother's bail application to be heard. Um, Essentially, I was working as a social work support on placement at the time at a homeless day centre. 
I had found a few addresses in case my mum's didn't work out. And so we were going to figure out, you know, where Wayne would be placed. That was the plan. Um, Somebody came into the courtroom with a note, handed it to the magistrate. Essentially, the magistrate looked at us and said, you know, this is very encrypted, but um, Wayne won't be appearing today. You'll have to go away and figure out where Wayne is. We can't provide you any further information. We don't know where he is. From that moment, we were pretty confused. We thought maybe there was just an issue, you know, on the day that happens, maybe the video link room wasn't set up or some administrative issue. We called, um, you know, the Legal Rights Centre. Nobody had heard anything. And then we grew more suspicious and a little bit afraid. So we started calling hospitals. We started calling, um, you know, the prison, just to find out maybe something had actually occurred to Wayne. It wasn't until hours later that I even spoke to somebody at the prison, the Aboriginal Legal, um, Aboriginal Liaison Officer, sorry, who said that they were all in a meeting. I quote that. So we're all in a meeting. I can't tell you anything. um, And that's pretty much it. And so, you know, from that moment, we knew that something had happened. Why were the corrections officers, you know, from what I um, thought at the time, why were the corrections officers and managers in a meeting? Um, You know, what, where was Wayne? And just the fact that there was a lot of silence and I think, you know, hiding in many cases about where he was. Eventually, somebody from the community actually told us that Wayne was in the Royal Adelaide Hospital They had already lied to us and told us that he wasn't there. When we showed up, um, there were two triage desks in the in the hospital. My mum went to, and my mum and sister went to one triage desk, and I went to the other to just ask about where he was. The first triage desk lied to my mum and my sister, and and I overheard at the second triage desk the nurses literally in front of me say oh, that poor family, you know, they're not going to be able to know that he's here. And so that was just coincidence. I called them out immediately and said, that's my brother. So clearly they thought we were from two different families. Um, From that moment, we were asked to wait outside in the car park. And after that, we were started to be escorted, you know, late at night when it was dark, started to be escorted up two by two to visit my brother's body, essentially. During that process as well, um, some managerial staff from the prison, from Yatla Labor Prison, actually came to visit us um, and tell us what had happened. But at no point did they actually tell us what had happened. They more so just apologised. And when I said, what are you apologising for? What have you done? They didn't answer. Um, But it was very clear when we got upstairs to see my brother's body you know, being surveillanced more so by two officers at a time who laughed at us, who stopped us from actually seeing Wayne's body collectively as a family to the very end till the doctors told them to leave. Things like that, There was, there's just so much, um, so much, you know, that we had to go through as a family and that we had to navigate in a time of grief. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of the process. And for all of that, the one of the recommendations was for the family to be issued with an apology, which I understand came this year 
all of those years later after uh, the events that you've just described. What what was that like? What what is it like to get an apology based on a recommendation in the context of um, South Australia Corrections challenging the coroner, challenge bringing on these fourteen lawyers? What what goes through your mind? So we didn't actually receive um, an apology um, last year. The ombudsman, who I think it was last year or in 2019, he released his report, Wayne Lyons, and he recommended an apology by corrections. But to date, they sent my mum, I believe, an email, um, but nothing to the rest of our family. And we've essentially decided that unless that apology is public and unless that apology comes with real recommendations, sorry, real actions attached from our recommendations, then it's not worth the apology. We don't want to continue to have to see, you know, anybody with the factor of silence around, um, you know, around our meetings. We don't want to give them the benefit of being silent away from the public who deserve to know that they are apologising, who deserve to be held accountable you know, um, to our community. So, yeah, we haven't received an apology just yet, but um, I hope it will be forthcoming. For the moment, the officers really are just not um, being forthcoming with evidence. So I, I consider that any apology from the state, regardless, is tampered by, you know, the lack of accountability from their staff. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Latoya Rule, the sister of Wayne Feller Morrison, who died while in custody on remand in South Australia in 2016. His coronial inquiry is currently underway in Adelaide in this 30th anniversary year of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. You're campaigning around the use of spit hoods. Actually, you're calling for the discontinued use of spit hoods. Obviously, you think this was a major factor in Wayne's death. And, of course, what comes to mind as well are those uh, really confronting images of Dylan Voller in the um, child detention facility in Darwin. Um, Tell me a little bit about the campaign, the, the broader campaign that you're working on. Yeah, so we think, you know, as part of, we may never know what happened in the van, but as part of Wayne's death, the fact is, is that he's, you know, a a key issue of how he died was through restraint asphyxia, bit hood and restraint asphyxia. So suffocation, essentially, and positional asphyxia. The way he was put down face down with the spit hood over his head. Um, There's different cases across the world where spit hoods have been so dangerous and caused death. There's cases, particularly like Mr. Daniel Prude in America, who, you know, in his 40s was naked in the middle of the street with a spit hood and he died due to police, you know, the police brutality upon his body and by wearing a spit hood in the same way as Wayne did as well. Um, There's multiple cases across the world of people suing um, governments for the use of these spit hoods, um, causing death and injury. And so we knew that 
we don't want this to happen to any other families, but also that this campaign really speaks to the use of force. It speaks to restraining people here in Australia. It doesn't just speak to Aboriginal people being restrained or deaths in custody either. It's much broader than that. We consider that these are torture devices. These are archaic. You know, they remind of medieval times. They remind us of people being shamed in the street and that's really what they're about we will never even know if Wayne really did spit or not but we know that his face was covered in this way and that we you know we never got to know his final words because of it and so um yeah we've started a petition to ban spit hoods um just on change.org forward slash ban spit hoods um so far we've got more than 12,000 signatures in the last few days and we're just calling for uh, a national ban on spit hoods. After our action last week that we had, you know, where we collaborated with House of Hal Muddy um, on Gadigal land in Sydney um, and the Department of Homo Affairs and a few other incredible groups that reference really the work of Karen Casey, um, a Radjuri artist, we, you know, had officers jump out of a van in the middle of um, Tarnton Young and Victoria Square, which is what is in the middle where all the um, courts surround it as well. So it's a real place, you know, of legal discourse. Um, and these officers jumped out of a 12-seater van that was covered in stickers saying Ben Spithood, you know, silence is colonial violence. And they came out with badges that said silence um, and the hoods are um, at the back of the hoods are the Union Jack um, in the form of a swastika to express that, you know, the white supremacist state uses spit hoods as they please to silence the office, for instance. They get to use them, um, you know, against Aboriginal bodies and as a form of, you know, looking at, at issues of sovereignty and colonisation. And so the front of the spit hoods, was the same material similar to what Wayne would have um, worn. On their epaulets, they had Australian flags and they were dressed as officers and they had fake blood on their hands and in their feet as well as they walked from their boots. Um, and we made it a memorial scene. We made it this action as if, you know, people all brought flowers, our supporters, including my family, and we kind of weaved past the officers to explain the power that we have as communities as well when we put our flowers and our wreaths in the van to symbolise, you know, that this van, that, that this is um, something that we'll remember forever, something that's really close to our hearts and that Wayne deserved for these spaces to be opened up to, you know, to memorialise him rather than silence him and our family moving forward. And so it was a really powerful action. Um, and from that, the South Australian government chose to ban spit hoods. So we've been successful so far in our plight for a ban. However, they um, have implemented a six-month phasing out um, process and we're not, you know, necessarily happy with that process because it also opens up the issue um, of them implementing potentially, you know, they, they really could do whatever they want. They could implement other deathly restraint mechanisms. Um, we just don't know what they're going to do at this stage. 
but also that they have only banned them in prisons, which is excellent. We've campaigned with Connie Benaros from SA Best um, in the last few years to ban spit hoods in all youth prisons, which is a now a national ban after SA following suit. But we know that spit hoods are also used in medical facilities. They're also used by police, we think. We're still just looking at the um, research on that just because obviously not all of these groups have been forthcoming with their resources um, or actually monitoring, which is another issue, the types of brutality and the types of, um, you know, torture devices used upon um, bodies, mostly black bodies and queer bodies. Um, but, yeah, we know that these spit hoods are being used in other carceral environments and also in medical facilities, mental health facilities, stuff like that. So not only are we, you know, we are happy that they've done the null ban in South Australia, but we know that we need to make this a national ban and we know it needs to be in all spaces that, you know, nobody should die um, from a spit hood and nobody should even be wearing them in this day and age. As you were talking about the action and the demand to ban spit hoods, I was thinking to myself, it's such an achievable, winnable demand. And then you went on to say that it was, in fact, one in South Australia in relation to prisons, even though there's the six-month phase-in period. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I wanted to get to with that was, yes, this is a, a winnable demand, meaning most people can actually get the dangers and the um. The, the violence of a state-sanctioned or state-imposed spit hood. Mm-hmm. But there's another part of these politics, these anti-carceral politics that I know you have and I know is in the broader um, campaign space that you occupy, and that is this idea of prison abolition because prisons are basically torture facilities and facilities of um, the extension of colonialism and the deprivation of freedom and that they actually don't do anything to limit crime. Uh, Are you an abolitionist? Is that something you believe in? And how do you think, if the answer is yes, how do we achieve prison abolition? That is a huge question. (laughs) But yeah, I, I do call myself an abolitionist. Um, particularly a decolonial abolitionist. There's different types. I think of abolition these days. One of the problems I think that people think of when they think of abolition is that, um, you know, where will we put the the serial killers and the murderers, you know, and, and all those people, that society, others. And I think for me the key Toward abolition is actually thinking from a community perspective. It's thinking about how do we stop creating people, um, people's environments rather, uh, that are filled with trauma, you know, over surveillance and policing of them to the point where they're experiencing more trauma and actually end up in communities. Um, you know, with a lot of grief and and the need for healing? How do we actually undo a lot of the damage that the government and society does to vulnerable people in general? So when I think of abolition, I take a step back even away from the prison and the carceral space and the built environment itself 
And I really am thinking about funding community projects. I'm thinking about funding, you know, more social services that are run by people with lived experience. I'm thinking of funding healing centres, grief and loss supports. Um, and also when I say I'm decolonial, you know, decolonial abolition, I'm thinking of nationhood. I'm thinking of supporting sovereignty, um, supporting Indigenous you know, people globally to be able to control our own affairs through agendas that are self-determining. Um, I'm thinking about stepping away from, you know, from environments um, where power is vested in continuing to steal Aboriginal land and steal Aboriginal children. Um, so that's kind of how I wrap up abolition. <laughs> Sounds a little bit fancy and nice, but I think we're always moving um, towards, you know, the imaginary. And as Angela Davis does say, we have to consider, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, that every single day um, we can imagine abolition and that we have to, you know, kind of walk it out um, as a daily practice. Um, and it's that hope for me that keeps me going because there's not a lot of hope when we're talking about prisons and, you know, in, incredible um, colonial governments which are just continuing to wield their power against us and continuing to kill more people. That was Latoya Rule, the sister of Wayne Feller Morrison, who died while in custody on remand in South Australia in 2016. We'll put up a link to that petition on the Accent of Women Facebook page so that you can all sign it and get behind the call for a national ban on the use of spit hoods. But that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Day, she says, time enough.